0: To all who come to this happy place, Hello and welcome to the Kingswell Avenue Podcast. I'm Paul Newhouse, your host. If you're new here, or you forgot what happened last week. This is a show about the Walt Disney Company and what I like to call its four pillars: the Disney Studio, Marvel Studios, Lucasfilm, and Pixar. And just so we're clear, I'm not leaving out the theme parks since they're such a huge part of the Disney brand. On a weekly basis, I'll be looking at Disney in the news, as well as taking a deep dive into a person, place, or thing, which I believe had a huge impact on the company and its history. And I'll be doing all of this in, generally speaking, short episodes, so you can get a dose of Disney and get on with your life. So let's turn to the news. This week, a new documentary series was released on Disney+. Plus. Inside Pixar consists of five roughly ten-minute episodes about, you guessed it, animation powerhouse Pixar, more specifically, the people there and how they tackle creative problems. Disney Plus's nonfiction programming has been excellent to date, so I was looking forward to this series. The documentaries about season one of The Mandalorian and Disney Imagineering were both outstanding, so if you haven't seen them, you should set aside a weekend and binge them both. Initially, I was going to complain because the episodes of Inside Pixar were so short, and I would have been more than willing to sit still for 30 or 60-minute installments. Now that I've seen the show, though, I think they're about as long as they should be in order to get across the concepts. Rather than feeling short change, I felt the pieces were elegant and succinct. Episode 1 features Kent Powers, the co-writer and co-director of the forthcoming feature Soul. Powers does a terrific job of conveying what it's like to be a professional writer, working from the specific to the universal, sitting down to do the work whether inspiration strikes or not, because that's what professionals do. I'm a writer myself, and I found myself nodding at much of what he had to say. Episode 2 features character designer Deanna Margulisi. I'm sorry, I'm probably butchering that name. Anyway, she teaches us to let ideas marinate and to accept blind alleys, new directions, and failure as part of the creative process. Again, some really solid lessons. Episode 3 covers Steven Hunter, an animator and director who created the short Out for Pixar. Again, this is a case of taking the specific and ballooning it out so that it's more relatable to a wide audience. This one doesn't have a nugget of creative wisdom, but I do think it's important since it demonstrates to gay kids there's a place for them in the arts and in animation. Episode 4 follows script supervisor Jessica Haidt, who developed a tool for tracking screen time by gender. Historically, in movies, male characters predominate, and Haidt wanted to make Pixar's films more representative of the real world, which is 51% female. The final installment showcases Dan Scanlon, who's a writer-director. He tackles the age-old question, where do ideas come from? His advice to think about things that make you scared or uncomfortable in the process of developing a story is pretty astute. As he says, you should consider those things because they're true. He's right about that. What do I worry about failing at isn't the only way to hone in on a story idea, but it's a darn good one. His personal story about losing his dad at an early age was one of the foundational elements of Onward. When I got to the end of the series, I no longer felt like the episode should be longer. I felt like there should just be more of them. In fact, a series like this one could easily go on forever. For kids considering a career in the arts, this should be required viewing. This week also saw episode 3 of The Mandalorian, season 2 that is. Mando and Baby Yoda arrive on a water planet. Mando hopes to find more of his kind so he can track down the Jedi and take Baby to his homeworld. All in all, I thought this one was really solid. Compelling new twists and tight direction from Bryce Dallas Howard, daughter of Ron, and alumni director from season one. She's evolving into a really solid filmmaker like her dad. This one saw direct connection to the Clone Wars animated show. Bo-Katan, heiress to the throne of Mandalore, appeared in live action for the first time and she was played by her voiceover actress, Battlestar Galactica's Katie Sackhoff. Katan tells Mando to seek out Ahsoka Tano, a Jedi apprentice from the Clone Wars, and a longtime fan-favorite character. The rumor is Tano will be played by Rosario Dawson in live action. The nice thing about these Clone Wars references was they weren't integral to the plot. If you got them, fine. If you didn't, it didn't impact your understanding. I verified this latter point with my wife, who's never seen a single minute of animated Star Wars. An interesting aside, one or more people at The Mandalorian are fans of the HBO show Deadwood. Episode 1 had cast members Timothy Oliphant and W.R. Earl Brown, and Episode 3 had Titus Welliver. For those of you who haven't seen Deadwood, I recommend it highly, although it's way more adult than anything you're going to see on Disney+. This week, a writer at tech site Gizmodo wrote a piece begging Disney not to make a live-action remake of Lilo and Stitch. I'm afraid I agree with this sentiment. I confess that I haven't seen any of the remakes to date, mostly because I think they're unnecessary, but also because of what I see as a huge injustice. Most people aren't aware of the fact that animation artists, writers, and directors are covered by the same union, a union that doesn't provide for their well-being. For instance, writers of regular movies, the kind with physical rather than drawn or CGI people, sharing the profits from those films. They get residuals for many years afterwards. Animation workers get no such protection, so when Disney makes these new films, they not only don't have to pay the original people, they don't even have to give them credit. When I see the trailers for the remakes and they feature shot-for-shot recreations from their hand-drawn counterparts, it doesn't sit well with me. Anyway, I'll come down off of the soapbox now. That's enough news for this week. Let's turn now to our deep dive. In this week's news, we talked about Pixar and Lucasfilm, so in our deep dive, let's talk about Marvel. Specifically, let's talk about the architect of the Marvel Revolution, Stan Lee. I mentioned last week that Marvel was started by a man named Martin Goodman as Timely Comics in 1939. In 1951, the name was changed to Atlas Comics. It didn't become known as Marvel until 1961, the year that revolution began. What do I mean when I say revolution? That's where Stan comes into the picture. Lee actually began working at Timely in 39, thanks to the age-old practice of nepotism. His cousin Jean, it just so happened, was the wife of Goodman, Timely's founder. Stan didn't start as a writer, of course. He had to work up to that. His first job was as an assistant. This was long before the modern computerized process of finishing comic books, so his duties included making sure the artist's inkwells were filled and erasing the pencil lines from the finished pages. Lee had always wanted to be a writer, and he eventually got to fulfill his ambition on the filler story Captain America Foils the Traitor's Revenge in 1941. Let me interject here with the first of two asides. Lee's given name was Stan Lieber. He decided to use the pseudonym Stan Lee because A. It was a riff on his first name, Stanley, Stan Lee, and B, because comics were not a respected medium at the time and he was afraid he'd be stigmatized. The second aside, which you probably picked up from context, is the fact that Lee did not create Captain America. The Captain's origins date back to the World War II era, so he was one of the characters Lee inherited as opposed to outright creating. Lee continued to write filler pieces until late '41, when, following a dispute with Goodman, the two creative stars of Timely, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, left in a huff. Seeing little alternative, Goodman installed Lee as interim editor. Goodman was 30 at the time. Lee was just 19. Beginning in 1942, Lee did a stint in the military where he served with several other famous or soon-to-be-famous people, including the director of It's a Wonderful Life, Frank Capra, creator of the Adams Family, Charles Adams, and Theodore Geisel, who you probably know better as Dr. Seuss. Throughout his military service, Lee wrote scripts for Timely, and when he was discharged in 1945, he went back to work for them. During the 1950s, he became increasingly dissatisfied with the work. He created stories in a number of genres, most of which were not superhero-based. The public had soured on hero comics during that period. By the end of the 50s, Lee was ready to quit the field. Late in the decade, Lee's counterpart at DC Comics found success reviving the superhero genre. He brought back The Flash and created the Justice League of America. Given the uptick in interest, Goodman charged Lee with coming up with superheroes of their own. Since he was considering leaving the field anyway, Lee's wife urged him to try writing comics he cared about. After all, Lee had nothing to lose. DC heroes were mostly flawless paragons, so Lee figured he'd go a different way. He'd give his characters flaws and relatable problems. This idea, in a nutshell, is the core of the Marvel Revolution. Finally, readers had heroes they could identify with. The writer teamed with artist Jack Kirby, who returned to Timely Slash Alias. Together, they created the Fantastic Four, the Hulk, Thor, and the X-Men. With Bill Everett, he created Daredevil. With Steve Ditko, he created Doctor Strange and Spider-Man. All the characters lived in a shared universe and came together in teams like the Avengers. Lee also brought back pre-war characters like Captain America and Submariner. Lee was also a natural-born showman and his flamboyant way of interacting with his readers created a new and extremely loyal kind of comics fandom. Given the Marvel line's popularity, Lee pioneered a new way of writing comics which became known as the Marvel Method. He provided his artists with a short synopsis, allowed them to draw the entire issue, and then went back and filled in the dialogue. This allowed him to do more work in less time. In 1972, Lee stopped writing monthly comics and became Marvel's publisher. In 1981, he moved to California to supervise Marvel's movies and TV shows. But this was long before the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Lee didn't step away from the company until the 90s, though he continued to receive an annual salary of $1 million in his position as Chairman Emeritus. Modern audiences no doubt know Stan Best from his cameo appearances in the current crop of Marvel films. He was in all of them until he died in 2018 at the age of 95. When he passed, I remarked to friends that Lee was nearly as important a figure in pop culture as Walt Disney. Both men created, or had a hand in creating, an amazing collection of beloved stories and characters. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, a franchise that's generated billions of dollars and won fans all over the world, wouldn't have been possible without the pioneering work Lee did in the 60s and 70s. All of the films in the MCU feature heroes and supporting cast Lee gave life to on the page. And, I'd argue, the movies are successful in large part thanks to their fidelity to Lee's original work. Though the movies are more sophisticated than their comic forebears, they capture the tone and style admirably. Whether you're a fan of comics or not, you have to concede that Lee was a titan in his field, and the work he did constituted a genuine revolution. Well, once again, we've come to the end of an episode. I want to say goodbye now. I want to thank you for listening. I want to ask you to subscribe, and I hope you'll tell your friends. Until next week... So long.